reached Maine, Grandpa knew almost everyone. Then he'd get right back on the train and come back to Boston with a new group of travelers who were returning home, and he'd do the same thing all over again. That was Grandpa. He connected with people and found novel ways to do it wherever he was, in front of the Old North Church, in a hotel while on vacation in Florida, in the kitchens of Boston restaurants, shaking hands with chefs, waiters, and busboys. He knew how to win votes, and he kept up his outreach to people from all walks of life long after he left office. He was always interested in learning something new, hearing people's concerns, and staying current on the issues that mattered most to them. Grandpa talked, but more important, he listened. He was also a student of history, and he made it come alive for me. There's Bunker Hill, Teddy. Let me tell you about the battle there. And on he'd go, recreating the scene for me, with his unique enthusiasm. He seemed to know every detail of the American Revolution, but what I remember most was his deep faith in the result of the Revolution, the American dream. To him it meant equal opportunity and opposition to prejudice wherever it existed. As the son of Irish immigrants, he suffered from prejudice himself. He told me about the signs in local shop windows that read, No Irish Need Apply. But he also told me how he saw America persevere, overcome bigotry, and create opportunity for these new immigrants. He had fought in those battles himself, and he inspired me to do the same. In fact, all eight of my great-grandparents reached for that dream. They had come from Ireland to these shores within 18 months of one another in the middle of the 19th century to escape the massive famine in their homeland. They dreamed of finding jobs, starting their own businesses, and giving their children a decent education. A nation dedicated to equality unleashed the energies of such people, and they loved America because of it. Grandpa was determined to continue waging that battle so others could take the same road. My family's religious views also demanded dedication to the needs and concerns of the least among us, and my parents passed that gift of faith on to all of their children. Every day we prayed at home or in church, and often at both places. My sisters and brothers and I all attended formal classes in religion and received the sacraments in our church. Our parents believed these lessons of faith would mold the people we would become. At the same time, they believed deeply in freedom of religion, without interference from government. They had endured ethnic and religious prejudice, and they wanted to end it. Freedom to worship in our faith could only be possible if others were free to worship in theirs. Still, the lessons we drew from our religious faith influenced our values and our vision of what America should be. For me, the most profound message is in the Gospel of Matthew. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. A stranger, you welcomed me. Naked, and you clothed me. Ill, and you cared for me. In prison, and you visited me. Similar themes are found in most of the great books of religion or philosophy. That sense of community and compassion, the belief that we are all in this together, has echoes in every moral system, whether religious or secular, and is at the heart of the great promise of America. I had just become a teenager when World War II ended, and I was deeply moved by the stories my brother Jack brought home from the war and by the ultimate sacrifice my brother Joe had made on a highly dangerous mission in the service of our country. I met many of Jack's friends who had fought in the war, 
and I saw how proud they all were to have been part of something so much larger than themselves. I was fourteen when Jack ran for Congress in 1946, but I remember what he told me shortly after he took office. He was taking me around Washington, pointing out the different landmarks. He showed me the White House, the Supreme Court, the Library of Congress, and finally the Capitol and the House and Senate office building. I loved it. Jack had the same knack as Grandpa for bringing history alive. But the thing that is seared in my memory and that has influenced the rest of my life is what my brother said to me at the end of our day of tutoring. It's good that you're interested in seeing these buildings, Teddy, but I hope you also take an interest in what goes on inside of them. Jack's words had an impact on me, but I didn't realize how much until 1954, when the Supreme Court handed down the landmark decision in Brown v. Board of Education. The court declared segregation in the schools to be unconstitutional, and my eyes were open to the awesome power of our government to create change for the good. I was still in college, but my future path started to become clearer to me. I heeded my brother's advice to take an interest in what happened inside the buildings in Washington, and I began to acquire a deeper understanding of government and its institutions. America worked, I realize, because its three separate but equal branches monitored one another. When two of those branches failed to protect the rights of Americans, the third often rose to the occasion. In the Brown decision, the Supreme Court stood up when Congress and the President did not. The Court's 1954 decision focused the nation's attention on the racial inequality that still plagued America nearly a century after the Civil War. It was a time when Martin Luther King Jr. began to lead the way forward. He had earned a doctoral degree at Boston University School of Theology in 1955, at a time when I was becoming deeply interested in politics. And although I didn't meet him personally until the 60s, I was riveted, as was much of the nation, by his unsurpassed eloquence and moral force. By the time my brother was elected president in 1960, the issue of racial equality had become central to the American agenda. In 1962, I was honored to be elected to represent Massachusetts in the United States Senate and to join with others to be a voice for positive change. I made my maiden speech in the Senate in support of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and I was proud to be part of the great battle for equality. For much of my career, we were winning the battle, step by step, but it was by no means easy. Violence, tragedy, bloodshed, and loss marred those early years, but Dr. King and the many foot soldiers he inspired had created a powerful, nonviolent movement they kept the issue at the forefront of our national discourse. At the national level, President Kennedy and then President Johnson spoke eloquently and directly to the nation about the need for change. We had courageous political leaders who staked their careers and their lives on making America a better and fairer nation. Robert Kennedy, Byron White, Burke Marshall, Nicholas Katzenbach, and Harris Warford in the Justice Department, to name a few. Mike Mansfield, Hubert Humphrey, Phil Hart, and Everett Dirksen were similar leaders in the Senate. We had judges who understood the real-world implication of their decisions and gave life 
to the post-Civil War constitutional guarantee of equal protection for all Americans, regardless of the color of their skin. J. Skelly Wright, John Minor Wisdom, Frank M. Johnson, and Earl Warren were just a few of the judicial heroes of the time. We joined together as a nation, Democrats and Republicans, blacks and whites, women and men, to bring meaning to the profound words inscribed in stone over the entrance to the Supreme Court, equal justice under law. A century after the Civil War ended, we outlawed racial segregation, eliminated the poll tax that barred many African Americans from voting, guaranteed equal access to public accommodations, outlawed job discrimination because of race or gender, and passed the Fair Housing Act. These were more than simply laws. They affected real people and real lives, and bore witness to who we were as Americans and what kind of nation we wanted to be. We showed the world that our young revolutionary nation was still on the march for progress. We also tackled other pressing issues. These were hard-fought, often brutal battles, to be sure, as highly charged and polarizing as any debate we're having today. But our leaders continued the drumbeat for equality, and we made progress. In 1972, we outlawed discrimination against women in colleges and universities. The next year, we passed the Rehabilitation Act as a down payment on ending discrimination against the disabled. In 1975, we banned job discrimination on the basis of age, and in 1990, we passed the Americans with Disabilities Act to give greater protections and access to the full life of our nation, to our 40 million brothers and sisters in America who are physically or mentally disabled. We had also eliminated...